Children's Hour. I feel I should fill in some philosophy or more formal advice. Channels can be changed. Here too. Let it be known that a man in a box is yet a man. A man buried is as lonely as he will ever be and ever was. Walls move if you do not watch them. Never take the pill. Highly regimented diets of air will sustain us. Troughs are to be watered and pigged upon. Mountains climbed are no less immortal. The back of the hand is a ravine that should not be crossed. Never touch. The unremarkable sound that faints in your bedroom at night is glass shattering. Swallow when spoken to. Spit when exhumed. A tar-stained rope will never do. A year's worth of salt will build upon dank newspapers left quiet. Ignore the patterns in the smeared print. They only forebode. Eschewed and stern. Default. Let the noises crowd each other like tea leaves and turn to the stars. Diviners are to be held in faith. The most graceful motion is a slice. The most noble motion is a faint. Now he focuses. Stands up. Draws breath. Slowly exhales. He looks ahead, but not quite. He keeps his eyes from straining. He reminds himself not to look out too far. He's stronger. He's wiser. This is his moment. This is his time to shine, his spotlight. His moment in the spotlight. This is his moment. He stands. He stands and is ready to deliver. He's stronger. He calms himself, collects his thoughts, gathers his wits about him, is stronger. He collects his wits, gathers himself, cool, He exhales. He draws his breath. He stands. He stands straight. His back is stronger. He backs himself away. He draws breath. He's cooler. He draws himself up. He strongs himself. He gathers his wits. It's time to shine back. Spotlight. Time to shine. Spotlight. Time to gather his wits and back himself strongly. Back to his spotlight and the back of it strongly. Gather his breath back and strongly back himself to the breath of it. Breath it. Breathe it strongly and wit gather himself strong. It cool it strongly, making force of it. He is stronger. He is wiser. He is gathering himself about to strongly. He is about to deliver. A sick wind rises up. It is unhealthy. It isn't cared for. It is a wind that has been left without other less frightening winds. A wind that has no way of its own length and reach and height above all. A wind, young, that derives its power from forward movement. Leaving behind all it can, including the knowing that it will, full well, come back in circular ways to where it began and was born, a wind without ease, unease, a diseased wind. It knows it can only circle before a gradual disappearing or dissipating or placating sadness. And so the wind cries, not in song but in motion. The wind is crying when it runs through the cities that touch a certain height, cities with buildings large enough to call. And it cries when it knows there is an answer behind it. It moves. It always moves. The wind, though lonely and sick, can take itself around the world or around itself in an equally as circuitous and impressed feat. In less time than it takes for the men, the wind winds around to realize they've been left behind by something that moves forward much faster and much better than them. The wind is not pride. The wind is sick. There is not a cure for the wind. There isn't a cure. There is no diagnosis. The wind can only allocate itself to itself, can only cry because it knows the very motion it uses, forward, not back. Back would only be forward when trapped like the wind is trapped. So the wind can only move its sadness into a furtherance of itself. The wind is immortal. The wind is cherished, though. By the men and the women, it wraps around when the weather's right. By the calls above the buildings, they're known. By the ones who bear it. By the parts of itself it does not know, but knows it does not know. By the same parts that do not know, they do not know. They only know, like the wind, that movement. It is a forward-wrapping circle. The wind cries. The circle does not change as it's only its forward And the wind, who is born sad and cries to move, does not think about its height or furtherance. The wind sees the wind ahead of itself. The wind, an impression of the next wraparound. The wind, because it was born a very long space ago, knows its links only in regard to the changes and faces that the men and women make with it. The wind also knows that, as it must be bound by stream of itself, 
a space unlike the wind because it is not part of the wind. It is a part of itself and a part of itself and a part of itself again until there are no parts but only the spaces between. The wind cannot move alongside itself like the men and women can because the men and women are all the same. Their faces. They move alongside one another and have that union or that left-behind sadness that the wind cannot fantasize about or dream about but knows is there feels in itself, but only in motion. Another, not another, as the wind cannot know another or two or one more piece. Please, the wind must run by its own strength afford motion. It can move. It will move. The wind is a will. It does not know this as it must be still to know, but it does feel. The wind feels this. This is the secret of the crying and the sadness and the diseased circuit. The wind does a sensing. It senses without itself knowing, like numb parts of the men who run alongside each other or the women who smile when wrapped around. The faces do not know each other, but the wind senses. But the wind also, while moving, feels in it that if it stopped, the sense of itself, the wind knowing that in its motion it is a motive and sensing thing, it knows it can stop. To stop and be still is not to be wind, but space, filled or not, air. Wind, though born, feels unknown to death. Feels itself to be known only in moving, sometimes achieving the same place in two circles, sometimes wrapping around the same faces, all the same. Sometimes in fear of its birth, or fear of its sadness, or fear of its ceaseless mode of motion, or fear of its sensing, knowing, fear of its not being wind. Fear. The wind is fear. The wind is fear in knowing, and the people who run alongside each other can only block their eyes, shiver. Coming to you from uh, LARB HQ in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, this is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down, sitting down today with Ken Bauman, author of the new novel you have just heard passages from, Solip. He is also, he co-runs a, he does a lot of literary things, he co-runs a press with a Blake Butler called Sator, and he has written essays for a, a number of venues. I want to talk about some of those as well. He's an actor. What, what should we underscore as well that LARB readers really should know that you are involved in, literarily speaking? Um, that's an excellent question. I feel like that was a damn good summary. That was a Chaucer-esque herald. Um, uh, well, you know, I, I publish a literary journal with Blake Butler, too, called No Colony, Sator Press is actually, I mean, I, I publish No Colony through Sator Press, yeah. but um, I'm the sole editor and sort of mm. dude in a garage of Sator Press, <laughs> although Blake is has always been a close friend and just a general helper. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think that's pretty pretty much it. I have I have a, a, a book coming out in, in fall called Say Cut Map, which is a novel from Blue Square Press. And then I'm right now working on a book uh, about a classic video game called uh, Earthbound. Oh, about yes. that, yeah. So that that's that's I'm on a deadline now for the first time in my life, a paid <laughs> deadline with people waiting to read the finished product, which is interesting. Um, now, now Solip was not, I guess, on a deadline. No, and it's also furthermore something I've heard called a non-novel. Sure. What is that? That's a good question. That's a good question for my publisher and his <laughs> copyist. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I've always felt that it was a novel to me in the same way that books like The Passion According to G.H. by Clarice Lispector or um, How It Is by by Samuel Beckett. I mean, those feel like a novel. I mean, the, the novel, the idea of the novel so amorphous now that it can almost accommodate anything, which it kind of makes, you know, makes the argument, well, why even, you know, tag that on the book? Mm. Um but I think that a novel sort of gives a little wink to potential readers that that this is something that at least the author feels is cohesive. Mm-hmm. That even if it's a little nutty or weird um, or obtruse or or even sort of aggressive, like like uh, how it is, or the passion according to G H, mm-hmm. that the reader knows that the writer had a certain faith when working on it. Mm-hmm. That it will cohere into something, um, you know, a, a sort of system. And it gives it you a trust or encourages you, encourages you to trust I the hope author. So. Yeah, I hope that's the case. And so I feel like I just sort of tagged it on. I mean, 
maybe I also felt that it was necessary to tag it on because I, I knew from the start that I what I wanted the book to look like, and you know, I designed it, and I thought, you know, this is going to look like a pretty enigmatic little inscrutable thing. And so maybe if someone could find something, be it in the copy or on the title page, that it was indeed a novel, that would help, help again, instill a little bit of trust or at least guide, maybe guide some curiosity, provide someone a framework to approach it with. Because when it's your first book out, they don't have much to go on, do they? So you're, you're kind of, you're just jumping off the cliff yeah. in a sense. Oh, absolutely. And I, I feel like, I, although I don't know, I feel like I'm jumping off the cliff with everything, to be honest. That's, <laughs> That's the only way to do it. I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, jump off feet first and, and hope you don't hit the rocks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, I think, about it for my literary stuff. Reading this book, it, I, I sensed two strategies that were viable. Number one, read it very, very fast. Number two, read it very, very slowly. Uh, have you encountered books in your life that you've thought those are the ways to go about them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, in a way, I feel like every book that I really respond to, that happens. Mm. In that, I want to stay up all night and and just blow through it. Mm. And then immediately afterwards, I'm, I'm compelled to return to it. Mm. I mean, ultimately, I think with art um, in general, attention is the only metric. It's the only guiding light. So hopefully, if you felt that inclination, I hope other readers feel that because, you know, that's that's a better... It's better to have two strategies than one, you know, yeah, as, yes. as, a, as an invitation to, to just draw more of the reader's attention and, and study. Um, and book design geeks will have that pathway in as well. I mean, I read the advanced reader's copy, which you've told me, you know, don't judge the book by this. <laughs> what should a reader who's buying a real copy mm-hmm. expect to experience in, on a pure design level? Sure. Um, I mean, I, the first thing I look at when I wake up are books. And the last thing I look at when I go to bed is books. And you sleep here in the lower box. I, that's I, why I do. I sleep yeah, in this very room it's under this table. We yeah. <laughs> have a cot. There's a little mat. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, it's very traditional in Japanese. I <laughs> curl up like a cat. Um, but I, I like paper a lot and I'm, I'm really tactile with books. And so I always knew sort of what the cover stock should look like. And I, I want readers when they see the book in person or when they, you know, rip open the Amazon box or buy it from, you know, their local independent bookstore, go independent bookstores, that um, they feel that it – I think I think maybe my sort of design guidance is best stated by the book's uh, epigraph. It's, it's a quote from Gustav Mahler. The call of love sounds very hollow among these immobile rocks. And to me, that informed my sense of what I wanted the book to feel like to a stranger because I, I want it to feel sort of um, – earthy in a way if that makes sense sort of like atomic so in other words simple black small um tactile not not like glossy or or not reflective in any way fragile and um and like a little bit of a mystery Mm. so hopefully i accomplish those things with the the weird cover image and and just the the lack of all information uh on the actual book which is a little obnoxious i'm sure to my publisher but he actually was like you you do whatever you want design wise and i went are you sure you want to give me permission (laughs) john to do whatever i want that's people often regret saying that um but he no take backs yeah no take backs Uh, but he supported it and i was like okay great but I think the non-novel thing is uh, that's certainly something that he he whipped up in his copy factory, and I you know I'm fine. I told him you sell the book however you want. I mm. and you're a madman for wanting to sell this book because uh, it's you know it's not it's not an easy thing to kind of market. But I'm I'm happy with how he's done it. We talked a little bit about how a book has to inspire trust in the reader, but it seems like there's a sense, at least with Solip, that you trust the reader to either. Pay attention or not pay attention, and it's all good, I guess. I, does yeah. that ring a bell with you? Absolutely. Um, it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing. I don't know if if my thoughts about that kind of that kind of attitude come from my time with the voice of that book, or if the you know what I mean. I, I don't know which came first or what informed what, but I I am constantly. I think it's important now when our attention. Uh, in this country or in any like highly industrialized place is so beset with um, calls for it and and demands on it and 
be the first to like this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just, there's shit constantly (laughs) in your purview that you did not ask for and nobody you knew asked for, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like this voice um, might embrace the idea that that attention is both sacred and highly useless and that and that you know and just and just totally profane mm-hmm. it's and that, that to me was the the tension of the book that i felt when writing it and i feel when reading it and when i was editing it is this oscillation between the sacred sacred and the profane the silent and the performative mm-hmm. and and you know having faith in something and damning it and wanting to be paid attention to and wanting to be ignored all of this all these tensions so hopefully that yeah ho- i'm i'm glad that you picked up on that that that's a good sign to me and i hope other readers do pick up on that that i mean really from a personal perspective if someone buys my book and wants to throw it in the garbage i encourage them to or use it for kindling i mean i i really don't i won't be hurt by that at all um and in fact it'll probably give me a little like a little smile if someone was like i hated your book and i lit it on fire like that's phenomenal. That's, that's a, a great, reaction. That's that something. Is, I want. St- I want intensity of response as right. opposed to just. So so yeah. Maybe that voice. Maybe that voice has something to do with my personal outlook, mm-hmm. or maybe my personal outlook arose from trying to cope with what this voice did in my head when it was kind of working its way through. I don't know, but that's great that you picked up on that. So, do you do a lot of reading of books with voices that? shall we say, carry you along or sort of go without you in a sense. I mean, you, you mentioned Clarice Lispector. That's, I would say her books tend to do that. Um, or like a David Markson or Mark Lane or mm-hmm. these, these books where they just keep plowing forward and you can hang with them or you can drop in and out. Uh, it's all, it, it all, it all works as an experience. You don't, a certain traditional novels, if you don't pay attention for a chapter, you're not going to like the next chapter because sure. it won't make any sense. But, there's a there's a different sense of sense here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think that, I mean, maybe maybe that's like the poetic sense or something. Mm-hmm. That 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 it's weird because I think also this novel. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak too much to to what the voice is re- reacting against because I don't know, um, and I don't know if I'll ever know. But I know that me personally, I there's a lot of tension in me about being bored with with monomythical narrative maybe that has something to do with the fact that i've been working in the entertainment industry in hollywood for so long you know what i mean you get tired of that shit since your early teens right yeah since i was i mean i've been working professionally since i was uh, 11 and so it's really all i've known um there's such a reliance and there's such a a cult of the monomythical Joseph Campbell, Christopher Vogler story structure in yes. Hollywood that you might, you gotta, you know, you gotta worship at the altar of story. And then that'll, that'll unlock your, that's it. As long as you follow this certain pattern, you unlock certain, you know, intractable, uh, you know, responses in any reader. It's universal and blah, blah, blah. But I think that's bullshit for, for the most part. Um, is it just appealing because it's it's pitched as here's the solution, here's the answer, yes. you can have it, and yes. that's in Hollywood that kind of plays. Absolutely, I mean, I do think that there. I mean, there are obviously Campbell's a brilliant guy. There are obviously fundamental patterns to world religions and beliefs and archaic society and and of you know more modern religion, and our brains are causal machines, and the way we create and construct causes all is pretty similar. That's that's not that varied. So. Maybe it both frustrates me that story, monomythical story, is does work so well. Maybe that I think that that is a frustration to me too. That it's not just that people preach it, um, but that it's also that it is so effective. And I've found myself moving at a certain point away from that kind of storytelling or that kind of literature and into this other realm of of a sense that. Yeah, it's it's maybe more of a poetic sense that the narrative is not necessarily a paint by numbers, but it still affected me in a really weird way, in a way that felt almost more intense, because instead of a journey that it inscribed in my head, it inscribed an atmosphere, mm. you know, and and there's something to be said for a really deep fog that you got to drive through. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it, a, a night drive is pleasurable, but 
there's something uniquely terrifying about driving through a really deep fog. Mm. And I feel like maybe those books provided that fog for me. It brings to mind an essay I read from you about formative art experiences, the central one being 2001, right? Kubrick's 2001, which itself does that, doesn't it? I think so. I mean, in 2001 to me is sort of like um, Wittgenstein's Tractatus because they both begin as attempts to service that, that native story and its structure. And then near the end, they just go totally mystical and, and batshit crazy. <laughs> and I, I, to me, that is so, that, that is so beautiful and honest and so aligned toward, aligned to the, I mean, it sounds, it's, it's pretty morbid, but it, it sounds so aligned to death to me in it as well. I mean, no matter how much self narration you do when you're living, on your deathbed, it's often more equivalent to psychedelia than it is to, right. you know, I've done it. I've pulled the sword from the stone yes. for the most part. And, and I think of where Dave Bowman ends up at the end of the movie. Exactly. And exactly. And so to me as a kid, that was so much more mysterious and compelling. And that's the thing too, that's, that's nice about monomythical story is it provides you with enough thrill that you want to return to it. And the the good ones do have enough mystery to also make you return to it. But I kind of favor the stories that really front load the mystery mm. or or near the end just inject a huge portion of it that casts the entire tale in a new light. Mm. That to me is more compelling and more enigmatic. And maybe I'm just the kind of person who's more uh, more... Curious, uh, just you know, for some fateful genetic reason, for that kind of that kind of mystery, that sort of aesthetic mystery, um, because not all people need it to be happy. I mean, not all people need uh, literature at all to be happy. You know, it's it's totally an elective thing. But for some reason, I find myself drawn to those narratives, and I feel like my entire life is is my entire literary life is going to be guided by pushing against that or accepting it. You mentioned your your acting life began professionally at about eleven. Did did you put pen to paper at all in a creative way before that? I mean, what I guess what I'm asking is which came first? Yeah, um, writing and books came first. I had always been like an ostentatious little bastard, <laughs> and um, and I was always the kid who you know when allowed to like make a little book or story in class, I'd go nuts. <laughs> and uh, and really embrace that. And I was always a huge reader as a kid. I grew up in a town um, where football and church were the things. And I didn't go to church because my parents weren't religious. I wasn't raised, raised with religion. And I was a, a li- like a tiny little kid, tiny, weak little kid. So I, football wasn't my thing either. Mm. And, you know, I, I still managed to kind of like skate between social groups and feel comfortable. Like I was a pretty happy kid. I wasn't picked on. Yeah. But I just read a lot. And so books were my first love by far. Mm. I certainly have had, in, you know, incredibly formative experiences with movies and even TV. Um, but books were the thing that I came to first. And that I started making first. I mean, I, I, when I was, God, I don't know how old, but I, I remember just trying to cop like all the stuff from all the fantasy novels I was reading when I, you know, when I was like in fifth grade or fourth grade. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to write a fantasy novel. And I did, I did quote unquote, I wrote a novel meaning, you know, it was probably like 8,000 words, but I was like, yeah, that's a novel. Um, but <laughs> I have a sense of scale as a kid. Yeah, no scale whatsoever. I was like, hey, I've got a map. I've got the fantasy map. I've got the mythology and the Look language. at this cover. Yeah, it's incredible. Exactly. Look at the cover. It's got a dragon on it. It's got a dragon on it. But it was it was Harry Potter. It was. Like, it was little kid, you know. And maybe this is another testament to monomythical this, story. This was post-Harry Potter, right? Pre-Harry oh, pre-Harry, Potter. Okay, I, I mean, okay I'm got, getting the timeline down here. No, but that, that was it. I, like, wrote a story about a kid who goes to a wizardry school and his parents are killed by an evil wizard and blah, blah, blah. So, and, and I don't think anybody would claim that Harry Potter is an original story. It's, it's not a novel story, uh, but it's, it's really well executed. It's told with great panache and, and imagination and, and emotion and all that. Um, but I remember when Harry Potter came out being so pissed. You know, I was like, this woman stole my work. Um, but yeah, so that's always been been the thing. I came to performance later, and I, I loved it, and I still do. But um, 
books were always the thing that yeah was was mm. I, deepest and earliest for me so it sounds like you you did your growing up essentially in the world of friday night lights uh, i've never seen that show but it sounds like that's the setting and you know you're now acting is is, is your main job in these is there some pressure just these two very worlds do they somehow indirectly exert pressure on you to go to the opposite of them, whether it's in literature or like to do a yin-yang thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, which I, I feel like sometimes is great and sometimes is, is pretty frustrating. Mm. I mean, I think like most people, I sometimes crave just like some crazy totalitarian authority in my head <laughs> to go like, You're do, you do this now, you know, for your life. <laughs> you know, I want somebody to come down and be like, this is it. You just yeah. dedicate yourself to that and you don't ask questions. It takes a lot of pressure to decide away. I know. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's that's the whole thing, like <laughs> driving us to tyranny and all that. We just want somebody to decide for us. But um, but I, uh, yeah, I feel like I've made that that little bounce or oscillation work in the past. And, and I, I try to keep it keep it going. Lately, I felt more more pushed towards the book stuff, but that's also just what I've been doing more, right. and 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 sort of with increasing access and like and you know I'm getting paid a little bit now to do it, and just all these little sort of markers that are fun novel like signifiers that like oh people are maybe enjoying what you're doing, mm. um, but uh, but yeah, it's been an interesting thing to have both both be so present and. You know, for the most part, the the acting has paid for all the literature oh. times a billion. You know, so so I don't I don't think that uh, if I wanted to like make a career of it, that the writing is there yet for me. But mm. um, but yeah, I think that uh, you're absolutely right. That has definitely been a, a, a guiding principle in my life's bouncing back and forth. To set up a little bit for listeners where you're coming from, I mean, what when you get stopped in Trader Joe's or whatever, and someone's just sort of giving you that like <laughs> double take, what 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 is it they say they saw you in? Secret Life: The American Teenager oh, by that's, far. That's a television show. Yeah, that that was a television show that ran for five years. It just wrapped up mm. not long ago, and um, it was at one point, you know, it was like four and a half million people were watching the show, and to me that. So it was just like staggering. That's a staggering amount of people. And your character was who? His name was Ben Boykovich. Mm-hmm. Was because he's dead now in the realm of all TV. TV, you know, did canceled. They, did TV. they kill him off or did they? Do- oh, okay, I wish they'd kill him <laughs> off. That'd have been great to go out and like a you know blaze of gunfire. But um, but yeah, that's that's for the most part where people recognize me. I, I get a, a few other things, but that was predominantly it. Mm-hmm. And. You know, I was on that show full time for five years and managed to do a few things here and there outside of it. But you know, it's it's it was a big job and it required a lot of work. Um, and yeah, and like I said, it had it was had quite a bit of popularity, which mm. it's an odd thing. I mean, I didn't, I never thought, or I never thought that pursuing acting would lead to that situation mm. of being in public being recognized and i it's ne- it's real i i mean i it sounds naive but it's never something that i thought was even a possible i never maybe thought it happens for other people but this is i'm, yeah, I'm different exactly yeah like no it's just you know whatever um and it's totally naive um for me to have thought that and it's not it's a it's an odd situation because it's structurally kind of weird because the, the the situation itself in theory I don't like, <laughs> uh, but I always, the people I always enjoy and I, I just enjoy people in general. Um, and so it's never, it's never that it's happening that it kind of makes me uncomfortable, but it's just that it exists as a phenomenon, mm-hmm. you know, that this, this sort of thing where people can lose their anonymity and just that I, people are staring at each other in Trader Joe's. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Like, hey, eyes down, you know, <laughs> buy your bok choy and get out of here. Yes, um, that's the totalitarian. Yeah, thing. exactly. I, that's that's it. I'm I'm pre I'm a fascist. <laughs> um, but uh, so that that's weird to me. And like I said, it's OK. And uh, but but I didn't know how much I valued my anonymity until I didn't have it. Mm. And I think that's, you know, that's just right. a human thing. You don't know what you got until it's gone. Um, well, there's a sense in which it's also different if somebody is at a reading and talks to you like, hey, I really enjoy your writing, and here's what it made me think about. That's You think, great, that's something I did that they engaged with. You know it was something you did. Yeah. When they say, I saw you on a show, it's like, are they responding to 
the show someone else wrote? Are they responding to the character someone else wrote for me? Or, you know, maybe they are responding to the way you played the character. Great, but it's there's so many things they could be reacting to. You're right. And I feel like you sort of learn, you get an intuitive sense of what they may be responding to when they first come up to you. I mean, and and unfortunately... Expect you to be the guy, the, the character? Yeah. And unfortunately, that's it. And And it's okay. I mean, I think it's an innocent enough thing to see someone in public and you know call them by their character name and and keep calling them by their character name and but even probably, after probably young kids too right it, it yeah it's young kids it's teenagers it's young kids not all young kids i mean i've had i've had you know older gentlemen and uh, like a 70 <laughs> year old woman you know and like uh, who the show was just sort of like oh i guess it's tv right. <laughs> a very diverse group of people watched it but um people just leave the tv on that's and there's a difference people leave the tv on the show might come on they just happen to catch it. Exactly. Won't happen with Solip, I don't think. I they know, seek right? it out. They seek it out, and they deliberately read it, which is good, but Ex- harder. Exactly. So, so it. But there's something about that 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 thing of when you see a, another human in person that you have seen in your living room week to week. Our tribal brains think you're related to them somehow. Exactly, and that's exactly it. And I, like I said, I think it's innocent. But I also think it's indicative of something that's a little sinister, um, but sinister in a way that just like modern life is a little sinister. And modern life is super sinister, by the way. It's not not a little. I mean, modern life is in, too complex, and and the the system is is unfair and cruel and faulty and you know fat tailed and all the bad stuff. But um, it's it's a sensation that I've never gotten used to, and. I like I said, I always like the people. The people are, are generally wonderful, but the sensation itself is something that always kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. And not, not like I said, not prohibitively, but just a little. It always kind of clicks in my head like, oh, this is weird. Now, you, you tweet out to like 30,000 people who follow you. And I yeah. do you have a sense of the breakdown there? How many people are following your character? Or they, they just think, hey, I, that guy I've seen on TV. How many are following your writing? I would imagine it's like a half-half breakdown. I mean, I just that's, I pulled that out of the air. Mm-hmm. But my question is more about when you're being a public persona on Twitter, you're, you need, you're writing about your writing. You're writing about other you – know, uh, you're writing about, as you've just said, the, the, the diagnosis of what may be uh, happening in the world. You're writing about a lot of things. Are you bridging – are you at all trying to bridge the people who come at you from different directions, come to you? Yes. Um, and I, exactly as you said, I always feel when I get into these little didactic moods that I'm just like an asshole on Twitter that's like, <laughs> yeah, the world works like this. And do you lose like a thousand followers whenever you do that? I wish. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> if I could actually have that sort of like definitive response, that'd be great. Um, but, you know, I, I haven't paid it. I haven't studied it too closely, but I do think that it's about 95, if not more, percent people who have come to me through Secret Life of the American Teenager and about 5% oh, through my writing. So I was a little bit off. I, You know, but hey, I think that's uh, – it's just I, I underestimate sometimes mm-hmm. that – how popular the show was but then if i anytime i look and you know just look at just sort of on my little at section what's your at replies like what's what's the stream look like it's it's mostly secret life of the american teenager stuff it's mostly teenage girls um about a show that's over yeah about a show that's over um but it's also internationally not over so it's that's that brazilians and such like the future is here it's just not evenly distributed so japanese saw the end of your show before you shot the (laughs) end before we even started filming it it was incredible long past they've come Uh, around the other side it's retro now (laughs) but uh but yeah so but it's still predominantly american teenagers um that are just thinking like oh it's cool to like talk to this dude on on twitter and but sometimes, and this is the thing I live for, you'll get the the teenage or young girl um, who reads some of my writing and, it, you know, is, is moved by it or sends me an email and says, you know, I ordered a book through Sage Press or blah. I, so in other words, I've formed... I've sworn, when you see someone make the jump. When I see someone make the jump, it really is heartening to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's I, I'm kind of obnoxious because with a platform like this, even though Twitter metrics are kind of skewed and that the people who actually read most of your tweets, such a small percent. I mean, I, I think it's like less than 10% of people actually 
follow in a strict sense other people on twitter and who reads every tweet from ashton kutcher ultimately exactly so i know people miss stuff and that's fine i mean that's built into the medium but uh or the platform rather but there is an excuse or like a little uh opportunity for me to be didactic which i kind of hate but at the same time i feel like Man, I wish I had heard that shit when I was, you know, 17 or 16 right. or 15. You want to go back five, ten years to yourself and say, okay, yes. myself following me on Twitter. Yes. Listen to that. Listen up. Absolutely. And just like <laughs> shake. And it, and it totally, and it's unfortunate because I totally cater to my preferences of being super into literature and the arts and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I've, but I've also, I try to, to read enough dissent or encounter enough dissent in my life about what I think is important. And sometimes, you know, I'm able to present both sides of a topic or something. Like recently, you know, I, I the Joy Williams wrote this article called The Case Against Babies mm-hmm. about overpopulation ostensibly and, and, you know, energy consumption. And I absolutely believe that humanity's ecological capacities are kind of fucked and that yeah there are too many too many people but more importantly there are too many people who consume of just like a hyper consume americans um we're the worst i'm the worst i'm part of the problem but i i feel like when i was a kid most of my friends girls and boys thought that you grow up you get married you go to church you have babies and you get a nice safe job and you die and that's good so that's where that's going on yeah texas. exactly yeah it's going on in abilene texas and they're not wrong hmm. but i will i thought okay if i can just tweet this article if anybody is curious enough to read hey that's a huge thing to somebody to just jump in and start reading now because reading the you know poo poo for most people like people just don't don't do it that often um, especially young people, which is again fine. But if I could get one or two fifteen-year-old girls who suddenly start thinking, like, wait, maybe I don't have to like have kids to be happy. Mm. That's great. That's the thing. I and but so many of my I I I do want kids. I I I have so many of my friends are having kids now, and it's it's not something that I think is inherently unethical. I think that raising a kid well is such an art and and so important. But um, but again, I want to use the platform to try to present outs and options to people that might not have encountered them. Mm. So in other words, I could just talk about, yeah, I'm going to Disneyland today with my celebrity friends. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm eating this. I'm at a party and blah, blah, blah. But that's yes. all bullshit. <laughs> that's all bullshit that, that doesn't provide any actionable information mm. to these kids beyond consume, look for fame watch TV, et cetera. Mm. So I, anything I can do to be like, well, you know, there are other ways. There are other options. You have options. Mm. Look for the options. That's that's the goal. And if you have the 15-year-old girls on your side, you kind of, the rest of the world falls in line ultimately. I mean, they, they're, they're the wave of the future, right? I guess so. I mean, I you know, using, this is a terrible metric anymore, but using bo- the box office, like it used to be just like, well, market just to teen boys. Right. But now, increasingly, it's teen girls too, and it it is it is kind of funny. I I don't I don't think of the people who follow me on Twitter as any sort of like followers in the sense of the word that like they're gonna give a shit about me in <laughs> a month, let alone right. like years. Um, but but yeah, so I, I in other words, I'm just like using the platform beyond pure self-promotion which i do you know enough to to make me chastise myself for doing it um but beyond that i want to go like well maybe maybe think about what kind of messages you you didn't um you didn't have the sort of like the luxury receiving as a kid you had to seek them out so if someone could have presented that to you earlier how maybe it would have been beneficial and that that you know drives me to like I said get in my little ranty <laughs> ranty you know spouts that are a little obnoxious but hopefully for the the good I don't know. Speaking of consumption, I, I remember a Vice essay you wrote uh, <laughs> on, on a Los Angeles subject called 
what was the title? How Jonathan Gold gave me Crohn's disease. What's the prob what's the probability that in fact eating what he recommended contributed to that? <sighs> Empirically, I have no idea, mm. but but my hunch is that oh, there's a high, high probability. Well, because what kind of thing did you eat on Jonathan Gold's recommendation? The, the question is, what didn't I okay. eat? I mean, you know, it was it was it was bad. I I was like I said, I was I was working on this show. I was getting paid too much money, and I had too much free time. And for my health, by the way, for anybody's health, nobody that salary that I had uh, is was poison. I, I really do think it that, might as well have been a trust fund. Yeah, at that point. <laughs> exactly. I mean, not not that level. Hmm. Thank God, not that level. It wasn't that, a really like less than zero situation, but you could see how they develop totally. Right. And that's the thing, I, you know, it's that Daniel Kahneman behavioral psychology thing. Seventy five thousand dollars a year, right? Well, God, that although with inflation, that's getting pile drived. But uh, uh, seventy five thousand dollars a year is like the level where your emotional happiness does not increase when you make more money. Your satisfaction can, but not your emotional happiness. So I was m making more than that, unfortunately for my health's sake. Um, and the whole time, you know, I, I didn't spend money irresponsibly, and I still don't. I, I was lucky. I got parents that drilled that into me as a kid. Um, but I was irresponsible in one big way, and that was I'm a glutton. And I encountered this list. And I was like, well, uh, I'm going to eat at all these restaurants. That was my quest in a year. And it's 99 restaurants. I had only already eaten at about 10 of them. Mm. And so I started. And because I'm a glutton and I was bored and my hours were pretty good on, on set, I would have nights free. And, and so I would take my, my wife and fiance, my fiance at the time, um, I would take her and we'd go out to, to dinner. I thought, oh, this is good. Like, we'll get a taste of L.A.'s culinary scene. Right. And that is really a way to experience the city, too, legitimately, is if you're not eating the food here in as much of a variety as possible, you're not really experiencing Los Angeles. I totally agree. And um, so we started. And I probably would have been okay if I wasn't such a fat boy inside and such a glutton. Because, like, I would go and I'd have gold's review of the restaurant on my phone and when we sat down to order i'd sort of look at all the dishes he recommended i'd order all those and then sometimes i'd order more right. and i mean be safe yeah exactly i'm better safe than sorry right and i think i absolutely activated my crohn's disease in a really severe way i was eating so much food first of all binge eating not good for crohn's uh for the obvious reasons um and fatty foods in, it's that's sort of a debatable question about whether it's uh, good for Crohn's or not. For the most part, symptomatically, not too much saturated fat. But of course, you eat at restaurants in LA, you're eating a lot of saturated fat, salt, and butter. And you don't want to see the ingredient list. No, God, no. <laughs> that's that's you know that that enforced ignorance is part of the beauty about restaurants. Um, but so I I was just eating I was eating like crazy, and. It really, in fact, that's probably my wife saying, calling, are you eating like crazy? She knew she knew we were bringing up the subject. Yeah, exactly. But it, it totally, I feel like, activated my Crohn's disease in, and in a bad way. And I flared up real fast, real hard, and started feeling symptoms. Two months later, I was in the hospital. So I don't think Jonathan Gold had any response. And, you know, in the essay, I go on to say, it's not Jonathan Gold's fault. But uh, I love a figure here. You don't want to make the wrong enemy. I know, I know. And <laughs> that's in the end of the essay. I'm like, we're going to go out to, to a meal. And I hope right. I can't go out to a meal with the guy. Um, it's not his fault. We're going to go to Animal. See ya. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Like, oh, God, no. <laughs> Just we'll eat some white bread and some brown rice and some bananas and call it a day. <laughs> You're uh, going to the macrobiotic Japanese place on La Brea. <laughs> yeah. Every uh, night from now Yeah, on. every night. Every single night. But um, so it wasn't him. But it certainly was my hubris and that's why i sort of liken it to like i was samson i flew close to the damn sun the culinary <laughs> sun i got burned man uh but i'll never make that well hopefully knock on wood i'll never make make that mistake again hmm. 
we have to be stimulated by something, you know, we're going to fill the void with something. And if it's, if it's following Jonathan Gold's edicts for all top 100 restaurants, if it's engaging in, if it's going as far out to the experimental edge in literature as possible, I mean, I'm not trying to draw too clear a line between these things, but. Oh, you can. Yeah. Um, what, what am I, what am I even thinking is possibly my question here? It's, it's that your environment is going to dictate what you might binge on, right? I mean, do you, I imagine you saw, in, back in Texas, you described friends thinking, you know, they're, 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 they were indulging in football or being, or, or having big families. I don't know. I mean, it's keeping yourself in a variety of environments that limits what you binge on, that somehow controls the binging. Does yeah. it? I don't know. What's the strategy? Absolutely. Um, and I think you're dead on. I mean, I, sometimes I think like, yeah, I'm a good old, you know, uh, Nico McKeon, moderate, you know, I just kind of <laughs> stay right in the middle. And I, that's so not true. Emotionally, I'm pretty good now. I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm just sort of a chemically gifted, uh, by fate with just sort of a good broad level of happiness. And I don't have, uh, dips into chemical depression at all. And I'm pretty stoic by training, um, and just even keel. But that said, I'm learning more from the, exactly that kind of parallel that I do like, not extremes, but I, I get pretty intensely into stuff. Mm. And that was the first taste for me that you can't get too intensely into something because you're mortal <laughs> and it can indeed kill you. Right. Um, and literature, you can engage with it pretty intensely. It won't kill you, but it can it can damage your ability to interact with other human beings. I mean, that's you know, I think everybody knows that. That you get too scholarly, too monastic, you lose your your just sort of common touch. And you know, and I don't I don't want to let myself get there. Right. I don't think I will, um, especially now that I'm married to a, a incredible human that keeps me in check and make and make sure that i don't you know i don't go down those those roads of sort of excess um and i know that just very physically like excess equals hospital equals surgery equals you know um and but yeah that's really that's an interesting thing that that i'm learning more but very recently i'm learning that that's that's the case Mm. I recall in childhood, my own vice was video games. And you mentioned, like, we were both in our 20s, or early and late 20s, respectively. But someone our age in America, you know, it's hard not to grow up playing a lot of video games. When when we did the 90s and such, we're a pretty good time for, yeah. for gaming. And you're writing a book on Earthbound, a um, Japanese role-playing game on the Super Nintendo that a, a lot of people loved. Um, in Japan and here, there's sequels in Japan and such. Here, it was just the one, and it had scratch and sniff stickers, as I recall. And I mean, was it? It was a little before your time, wasn't it, Earthman? It kind of was. Although uh, that's great that your vice was video games. I'm tempted to just like talk, you know, about video games. Ask you all about your your what? What did you have? One video game that you remember? Like the one no. for you? I am. I'm 28, mm-hmm. so I grew up. In the the heart of the Genesis versus Super Nintendo right. debate, I was right. a Genesis kid, oh, so okay. I sort of couldn't play Earthbound uh, legally in a sense, or at least the playground wouldn't permit me uh, until I got until I grew up a bit and could could be on both sides. I gotcha. could cross the I could cross Jerusalem there in some <laughs> sense, but uh, you know I was I was very much a Genesis player, uh, and it was just all about playing as many games as possible gotcha. and uh, as frequently as possible. Gotcha. Yeah, I feel that, man. And I I still do that to that this day, you know. I'll get I'll get a game and I'll again, it's that extreme thing. Well, and I'm getting better, but like, oh, I'll play it 8 hours, <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, I'll play it all night. Right. Um but uh, that was a masterful segue, by the way. I got to <laughs> give it to you into the Earthbound book. Um the Earthbound book has been fun so far. Earthbound itself is is kind of peculiar. I first played it when I was five. Mm. My older brother was 12. And although I had only played it once, maybe I had played it, you know, twice or three times in, in you know, when I was five and six. Again, it's all kind of blurs. I don't really have, like, much documentation about any of this stuff, which is kind of part of the fun of the book. I'm, like, playing archaeologist with myself. Mm. But... uh it stuck with me. It stuck with me so definitively. And I've always thought that the game was just totally fascinating. Mm. And so when Gabe Durham, the guy who 
uh, is the publisher and editor in chief uh, for Boss Fight Books. When he told me, hey, a pop culture series of books about video games doesn't exist, like 33 and a third. Right. And, you know, and I said, like, yeah, it does. And I Googled it and it doesn't. Which is, you know, that's like, there's something to be said about epistemology now in Google. It's like, you know, it's not even a question of like, I didn't even think, wow, I'm going to have to do any work whatsoever to find out that answer. It's right. just like a little typing and I'll know the universe, Google, the universe will provide the answer. Right. Um, but we couldn't find anything from our cursory search. And so I just, I got obsessed with the idea and I was like, Gabe, you got to do this. You got to strike while the iron's hot. I guarantee you other people have this idea. It's the first one that into the market will win. Right. Um, and so I drove him a little crazy. He finally was like, if you write a book, if you write a book for it, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. I said, I'll do it. And I talked about Earthbound, Chrono Trigger, and Final Fantasy 3. Super Nintendo role-playing games, all of Japanese origin. Correct. And I pretty immediately was like, it's got to be Earthbound. It's it's by far the most idiosyncratic game. Um, it's so weird. And so then, you know, pretty quickly we did the Kickstarter for the Boss White Books thing. And, you know, people responded. And suddenly I was like, okay, I, I have to write this book now. So I had only played it when I was young, and I'm replaying it now as an adult for the first time. Mm. Although I've known the culture of Earthbound pretty well for a while. Although now writing this book, I'm discovering that the culture is massive. I mean, And it thrives today? Yes. Mm. Um, there are a few online communities, the biggest being Starmin.net, mm. that the people are just obsessed with this game and specifically that game or is it about like the fan translations of the sequels is it about like hand localizing the other earthbound mother i guess the series is called in japan taking that stuff and bringing it here what's it about what are they doing i think that has a lot to do with it um but for the most part my sense of it now because mother three is there there the english translation is done it exists um and you can you know play it on on a a legal rom or whatever with this kind of homemade english translation and because you can play mother earthbound's prequel on a rom with an english translation um the the work is sort of done you know it's it's an interesting community in that there is no more work to be done it's everything now is just pure aesthetic appreciation, admiration, super minute, obsessive, like detailing of aspects of the game or technicalities or, or its structure or its origin story, you know, its origin rather. And, um, and so now most of what the Starman and Earthbound communities do are just keep up with Earthbound news in, in culture and just like make, you know, Payons to the game. They're making fan art. They're making fan music. They're, you know, writing about their experiences, replaying it for the 50th time. It's Earthbound worship, essentially. Totally. But tell me, I mean, how much of the questions, how many of the questions that drive your book are about what exactly makes Earthbound so compelling? You know, what 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 does that game tap into that people still appreciate? Is, is it all our age, roughly, people, or is it all types? What's mm-hmm. What's the, who is it and what do you think they're responding to? Who is it is a good question that I'm finding out more and more. I do think that there's, you know, the, that sort of brunt of people who are between 5 and 15 when Earthbound, Earthbound came out in 95. I feel like that's the, the majority of the audience in the fan community. But there, and now, my God, this is huge news for Earthbound fans. It just came out two days, I think two or three days ago. Um, on two, yeah, yeah, maybe three days ago on Wii U's store. So now, mm. if you have a Wii U, you can play Earthbound for the first time. So there's mm. there's going to be a new generation of people who encounter this game, which is so exciting mm. to me, um, and great. I feel like just timing for the book because you know hopefully it'll serve as just sort of like a little uh, a, a very hearty recommendation. <laughs> um, but. The people's fascination with it is something that I'm totally trying to pinpoint in the book. Mm. I, I do think that the book, the I think it's the tone more than anything. Um, the, the tone of the game, the tone which the is game. funnier than most role-playing games. Totally. It's, and it's mo- like modern day. It's kids, 
kid in a neighborhood with aliens. Come on, scratch and sniff cards. Correct. Yeah, I mean, their marketing campaign was insane. It was, it was and like, unsuccessful, as I recall. Yeah, and totally unsuccessful. The the tagline was "This game stinks," <laughs> and whoever came up with that was a genius. Um, but no, it, you know, they released scratch and sniff stickers with the game. The game. It failed because it was expensive and because the box was weird. The box was big. It came with a guide. It was $70 in 1995, which is equivalent to like $120 now. That's crazy expensive for a video game. So not many people bought it, and it bombed for all intents and purposes in America. But the the tone is exactly that. It's, it's contemporary. It was one of the first RPGs to be set now. And... And, you know, exactly, kids in a neighborhood with aliens. It's it's a common trope. It's the E.T. thing. Um, but it was executed so beautifully. And it's not just kids in a neighborhood with aliens. And that's, that's to me, what makes the tone of Earthbound and what makes it so idiosyncratic. Because the story is simple enough and, and you know, and cute and, and functional in a video game way. Um, but it is the emotional aspects of the story that are super tuned up and like totally don't belong in a video game. It's sort of the moral lessons that are, are present and that most games just don't even, I mean, don't have at all, don't even attempt to have. And it is the crazy amount of inspiration from disparate pieces of culture. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's like the, the game playing the game is like encountering, a Roger Corman B sci-fi movie. Mm. It's like encountering uh, the co- work of the Coen Brothers. It's like encountering Norman Rockwell paintings and um, you know satire about American culture and consumption. It's encountering like uh, myths about you know the origin of humanity. It's it's all of this stuff, and. For some reason, it just is po- it, the tone, the the sort of mm. self satirical light um, light tone that's occasionally punctuated with like really intense um, trauma mm. and sadness and nostalgia. Right. It's it's unlike anything. I recently was talking to Marcus Lindblom, who was the main translator. Um, he's going to write the forward to the Earthbound book that I'm writing, and I asked him. I was like, you know, you're you're in your 50s. You worked on this game in 95. Have you encountered anything like it So, w- with so many different influences? And it could be anything. I said books, uh, movies, video games. And the only thing he could think of was, oh, brother, where art thou? It's that specific Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. And I was like, th- that made a little sense to me because it's goofy. And yet it's punctuated by, you know, like I said, very real stakes and and trauma and emotional situations it's you know it it it's very dominated by its music its fascination with music and music sort of of um not necessarily varying styles but certainly different presentations of mm. of a similar of one style and you know it's it's ambitious it feels like a a mythical story but in, in a local place but told really uh, well and grandly, and even still, O Brother Art Thou, not nearly as like idiosyncratic. Mm. So I feel like Earthbound does what, what like some grand novel that like you know Cloud Atlas or something mm. that just is jumping from timeline to timeline, tone to tone, and I feel like it you know it pulls it off beautifully as well as any piece of art can. So I, I mm. I'm writing the book not from the perspective of someone who loves this as a video game. I'm writing it as someone who loves it as a piece of art. Now I feel like I've got to represent for the Genesis kids by writing about the fantasy star uh, two through four that appeared on the Genesis. Uh, But playing, I remember playing those and it's, you're playing a role-playing game. It feels like you're making decisions. You're not really. There's one path, generally speaking, in that era. You could, I don't know if it was true of Earthbound literally, but you would end up at the same place yeah. if you played long enough, no matter what you did. I mean, in the same way, reading a book, you'll end up in the same place no matter what. Uh, both of them pull you along. You know, they, they, they take you with them. And it does seem to me the way you describe Earthbound and, and what it does well, it's kind of the advantage we've had writing books since, you know, Ulysses is, is pulling everything in. And doing it in a way that, doing it in a way that, you can you can be more concerned with the tasks of, uh, uniting 
disparate realms and and then crafting a tone that can do that right mm-hmm. i mean that seems like part of your task with Stolip here correct me if i'm wrong but it seems that way yeah i mean i i think that's absolutely the case it's sort of you know blake butler who i i do know colony with and we're just good friends we've known each other for a long time and you know i think that he well, I know that the the book that really changed his life and made him pursue literature was Infinite Jest. He was mm. studying, I think, uh, computer programming in college. He read Infinite Jest. He totally went, whip, reorganized his entire life to pursue fiction, writing, mm. reading. And, um, he, you know, he, I think he steals or cops this sort of like the idea. Uh, that's pretty common, but David Foster Wallace was a proponent of it. That, you know, pieces of fiction or pieces of art need to have some sort of logic. Mm-hmm. And you, you you might not be able to talk about it explicitly. You may not be able to just immediately chart it out when you're done reading the book. But it's got to it's gotta have a sense um, of, of cohesion, that, that there is a tone, as you said, that allows you to do a bunch of wacky stuff mm-hmm. or a bunch of disparate stuff. Um, narratively or v- vocally, and and I feel like Earthbound totally does have that tone, and it, that's exactly it. The tone is is self critical. It's super charming. It's goofy. It's silly. Um, it doesn't take itself seriously at all, and um, and yet it's it's very emotional and moral. And I feel like yeah, you can you can in Earthbound you can get away with like you know becoming a disembodied spirit that then inhabits a robot as you chart to the final boss or or running around in like prehistory with dinosaurs attacking you or running around the neighborhood and beating up skateboarders with a baseball bat yes like or being a you know being attacked by cops all this like ridiculous stuff but the tone permits mm. and so that's i feel like you're you're dead on soul up to me it wasn't a top-down experience, you know. I didn't think like, okay, here's what I want to do. So let me construct a tone to to do that. It totally came bottom up. It totally just presented itself. Mm. The voice did, and then when editing it, that's when the top-down sort of exercise came. Of okay, wh- what is this book going to do to a reader? How does it operate? And how can I emphasize its strengths? And how can I cut the stuff exactly that doesn't belong in that tone? And doesn't just doesn't work doesn't isn't permitted, and yeah. So I think that that's that's an interesting way certainly um, to create fiction. I, I feel like probably most people, including Shigesato Etoy and my experience with Solip, we don't necessarily think like, let me construct the tone first. Um, you can certainly have aims. You can certainly say like, I, f- I have this feeling. Like I want to create something that has this feeling. Um, but then for the most part, you just get to the actual work of it and then kind of like tweak and make sure if you're, if you're staying faithful to that feeling, you know, in the process. Between Solip and the Earthbound book, you also have another book on the way, right? Mm-hmm. Did I have the, that chronology correct? Mm-hmm. What can we expect? It's called Say Cut Map and it's coming out soon. I'm, I think it's done. I, I turned in another edit to the, the editors and they're like, yeah, okay, this is, this is it. We think we're going to, you know, look at it one more time. Um, but Say Cut Map was composed, again, in a different way from anything I've written. And that sentence to sentence, I felt like I had a few things in my head um, that compelled me to write it. I was thinking about um, this couple, an unnamed couple, and their relationship. I was thinking about... Um, traveling um, to somewhere deeply foreign and and disconcerting in its violence and trying to help there. And, you know, if, if that reasoning was just or, or opportunistic. And then also trauma, physical trauma, and a very certain physical trauma. Um, Involving, you know, uh, the the man in in the this sort of unnamed couple's uh, his right hand, and so th- these images wouldn't leave my head, and I kept thinking about it, thinking about it. Finally, I just said, "Let me just sit down and write." I didn't know sort of what I wanted to do with it, or what 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 tone it would have, or certainly what structure it would have. And then suddenly, sentence to sentence, I just felt myself like almost getting a 
a glimpse of a sentence from one episode in this couple's life and then jumping, you know, from, from the romance, from the or their early romance to uh, his trauma and sort of a strange place and then back and then forward in their lives and backwards and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And th- it, this sort of like crazy fragmented um, style just felt comfortable and I felt like I'll just write it out and see where it goes. And so the book is primarily the story of um, a man and a woman who come to love each other and um, what that love does to them in the face of uh, physical trauma. Mm -hmm. And... And media attention as well. Which you know something about. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess <laughs> now. Um, and again, you know, I, I it's it's certainly going to be a peculiar read for people who aren't too um, deeply into sort of weirder literature. But I don't think it's prohibitively weird. I, you know, I want to make sure it isn't. And I want people to know that to me, I mean, the book feels incredibly romantic and, and painful. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and yeah, it's it's it is fragmented, but hopefully it's fragmented in a way that like Markson is, you know, where yeah. it's just it's beautiful and and lucid, crazy, but lucid, <laughs> you know what I mean? Crazy and lucid at the same time. Mm. And and yeah, and, and to me, like I said, I, I feel like it's a romance. I really do. I feel like it's just a, a painful and and you know, partly amputated romance. And that's mm. Those exist, you know. I've been speaking with Ken Bauman, author of the new novel or non-novel, whichever you prefer, Solip. He is also the co-publisher with Blake Butler of No Colony. He is the proprietor of Sator Press, and he's got two more books on the way. Ken, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. Find more from me at colinmarshall.org and more from the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.